and you're listening to 94 WIP. We ease on into WIP Sunday. My name's Peter Solomon. My guest this morning, author, academic, David Nuremberg. His new book, What Does Injustice Have to Do With Me? Engaging Privileged White Students with Social Issues. And I'd say we ought to change it to Privileged White Students to Privileged White People. But that's part of the discussion. Good morning, David Nuremberg. Good morning, Peter. Thanks for having me on the show. My pleasure. Why did you choose focus on students? Because I think it's privileged white people, period. Well, I think uh, privileged white people, and I include myself in, in that population, uh, start out <laughs> as privileged white students. And as an educator, uh, that's the lens uh, through which I've had 20 years to, to look at this issue. Okay. Who do you see as being the privileged white student? Well, to some extent, I think uh, any of us who are white carry with us um, privilege just by the nature of our society being so structured to uh, give advantages to those of us who have white skin. Of course, you know, privilege is intersectional. Um, there are lots of different ways in which even among white people, you have gender and you have sexual identity and all kinds of other things that create these hierarchies. But at the same time, we'd really be lying to ourselves if we didn't recognize the big white elephant in the room that we have a lot of institutionalized advantages. Um, one really quick example, I live in Boston. Um, I fulfill the stereotype of being a really bad Boston driver. And I have been uh, on occasion stopped by law enforcement for doing not so great driving things. Um, and I'm, I'm pretty darn confident that uh, unless I do something completely wacky, I'm never in danger of having a policeman uh, threaten my life. And I, I could not have that assurance um, if I were an African-American man. So we're talking about structural issues like that. And those structural issues are largely invisible to me unless for some reason I choose to think about it. That's part of privilege as well, not having to think about race unless you choose. And I think that's sort of the the condition our condition is in if we are students in or teaching in schools that are largely white, and the average white student in the United States attends a school that is 77% or more white, and particularly schools that are very affluent, because these are schools that don't show up in conversations about so-called educational reform, right? We place this exclusive focus on looking at the situation uh, faced by students and teachers in largely urban uh, schools that serve majority students of color, and of course, it's very important to address issues in those schools. Uh, those students face a lot of structural, economic, educational barriers, but it's seductive to keep our conversation there all the time because then it takes people like me out of the equation. It absolves me of responsibility. It says, whew, you know, good thing I won the birth lottery. This isn't my problem. And in fact, I'm a part of that problem. And until we recognize that the folks who still disproportionately go on to be decision makers in our country. And I'm not saying that's a good thing. I'm not saying that it's not changing, but still, um, I mean, look at our current Congress. It's the most diverse one in American history, and it's 70% white. <laughs> and more than half the officials have an average net worth of 100 million, sorry, $1 million or more. You know, 90% of Fortune 500 CEOs are white. And so short of a major nationwide revolution, and as much as I love Bernie Sanders, I just don't see that happening anytime soon, any fundamental shifts towards equity are going to rely on at least some of these wealthy white folks developing a, a new and different understanding of what social justice means and what role they can play in it and how it might even be to their benefit. And I think that 
we have an opportunity as teachers in schools that, you know, are usually considered, you know, successful and high performing. I mean, if you look at test scores, yes. If you look at college admissions, yes. But if there's a matrix somewhere that, I'm sorry, a metric somewhere that addresses, I hate this term, but wokeness, these are failing schools. And so we really have an opportunity here. Um, and there's a lack of educational literature focused on how we hope these students develop an understanding, first of all, that structural racism exists. And second of all, that it's not just somebody else's problem. Um, it actually hurts us white folks too. And so um, there really weren't any books out there, um, you know, designed to help teachers address these issues with these populations. And uh, that's why I did my best to write one. Um, certainly still very much on my own journey. I have not um, figured all of this out myself, but I've been very fortunate to meet a lot of wonderful anti-racist educators, uh, some white, some of color. Um, I've spent two years doing a lot of reading and research and 20 years as a teacher out in the trenches there, suburban trenches as they are. <laughs> and uh, that's what this book's about. All right. Just as you talk, you brought up two things for me. One is you see it a lot on television sitcoms, an African-American family, parents talking about, did you have the talk with the children? The talk meaning surviving in a white society. Mm. Do you think that's helpful? Oh, I, I mean, I certainly can't speak to that because that's not my set of experiences, but I think that white families really need to have the talk with their students <laughs> about what role that what we play in educational and social and structural injustices. You know, it's not a, a coincidence, for example, that we've got these huge racial divisions when it comes to suburbs versus cities. Again, I'm in the Boston area, one of the most segregated places in the country. You know, Brown versus the Board of Education, which was always taught to me as, oh, this was sort of, you know, the end of school segregation. And now from here on, you know, we're all segregated by choice. Um, well, no. <laughs> you know, there's this history of redlining. There's this history of selective covenants. There is the nightmare of attempted uh, busing to desegregate in Boston in the 70s. And so, you know, without talking about the choices that people like me made and the choices we continue to make by not addressing this stuff, um, you know, we're, we're not having that talk and things aren't going to change. And that's not just a, an issue of, of altruism in trying to change these things. This situation hurts privileged white students also. Um, you know, there, there's been an increase in anxiety and, and mental illness um, among adolescents really across the board in the last 20, 30 years, but it's been most pronounced among affluent students, among affluent white students, which is weird, right? Shouldn't these kids be the most secure of all? I mean, in terms of health outcomes they are, um, in terms of, of college admissions, but there's something particular to these environments that are eroding their sense of self-efficacy and purpose. And so many of, and this isn't just my students, you know, through, through research I found out, wow, this is actually the case of students all over the country in these schools. They lack resilience. And it's not surprising, maybe, they've had so many supports, they've been shielded from so many consequences that they haven't really had the opportunity to develop resilience, to see how they can fail and pick themselves up again and learn from their errors and do better. And these are great kids. I mean, these are kids who, in some cases, really want to make a difference out there. But they've never been able to develop the tools. You know, if they fail a test, their parents often rush in to ask the teacher to change the grade. You know, if they... If they cut a class or plagiarize, you know, they'll, they'll get a slap on the wrist. And as a result of this, I think the slightest setback throws these kids into a tailspin. I've had kids earn a C plus and seriously contemplate suicide. You know, when, when they run up against something that their parents and teachers can't shield them from, 
uh, getting dumped by their boyfriend or girlfriend, getting harassed online and social media. It's, it's like Jenga. <laughs> Everything comes crashing down. There's been this huge expansion of mental health supports in affluent schools, all this money invested in helping kids you know, negotiate these kind of minor traumas. There's been a nationwide push to give these kids less and less schoolwork. And, and think about that, right? Think about how hard students and families and teachers have had to fight in majority-minority schools to get rigorous curriculum and high expectations. And now you've got these affluent schools falling over themselves to, to scale back. It, it's a sick system. <laughs> it's hurting everybody. And so, you know, folks like me, we have a, a self-interest, not just an altruistic interest in changing the system. But that requires a particular skill set. No one is born knowing how to address structural injustice. And so, again, my, my book attempts to walk teachers through the kind of very gradual and complex and, and difficult process of, of having the talk, <laughs> um, especially as a white teacher, but even if you're not a white teacher, with um, very privileged white students. It's not their fault they have this educational gap. It's, it's a learning gap. But it's a gap that we have a duty as teachers to help address, and it's hard. Absolutely, it's hard. The other thing, though, is a lot of people feel, well, I got mine. I I gave to my children everything I could. Those who can't do it, tough. What do you say? Um, I say that sounds like something I've heard (laughs) very often. And, you know, it, it, it gets at the fact that you can't, you can't go in head on um, with a stick talking about these kinds of things, right? You know, you can't hit kids over the head with it because, you know, either they'll resist or they'll shut down or their parents will resist or alternatively they'll get consumed with feelings of guilt and hopelessness and, and none of that's useful. So, you know, I, I've found that, again, the research supports that you've got to start small. Right. You have to start having these conversations that, um, to use the, the words of Melody Hobson um, in her TED Talk, help us become more comfortable with being uncomfortable. And that way, you know, at least we can start to, to have these conversations before we get into those knee-jerk responses of, for example, well, you know, I've got mine or, you know, people make their own destiny or all, or all the kinds of, of, of knee-jerk responses that we're educated to, to, to have at the, the ready. And then sort of have this slow and scaffolded progression from building a respectful and affirming community in the classroom to engaging students in thinking about their own identity, to probing experiences of those they consider to be racialized others, to look for areas of common or analogous experience, uh, and then eventually getting past that to talk about the different experiences that race confers in all aspects of life in our country, to thinking about how white racial identity is constructed and how that construct um, can be harmful, not just to people of color, but also to, to whites like us. Um, you know, ways in which it might make someone like me less secure, maybe less moral or ethical than we want to be, less worldly or less educated. That's a big one for students and, and families who are really conscious about um, college admission. <laughs> um, to the larger picture of, hey, We've got these huge problems our, our, our world is facing. We've got, you know, global environmental catastrophe. We've got international terrorism. We have this pandemic. And you don't solve complex problems by only tapping a resource pool of a small uh, subset of the population. There's so much research about how diverse teams are better at problem solving. And if you don't 
grow up with the skills to work with people who don't look like you, who haven't had the experiences um, that you've had, that really positions you in a bad place. <laughs> and that positions the world in a bad place. But, you know, the, the summary I just went through in the last two minutes is the progress of, at the very least, a whole school year, if not four years, if not a lifetime. I mean, I'm still very much on this journey myself. So I think, you know, creating the conditions and facilitating the kind of classroom where you can have that complex series of conversations, at least is the way that, that I've found so far to try and get past those knee-jerk responses. It happens all too often. The cheating scandal in so many colleges. People of prominence, people of wealth, go to prison because they spend a little money to get their kids into school. What are, what yeah, are your I mean, on that? sorry, go on, please. What are your thoughts on that? Uh, I'm not super surprised by it. Um, I think it gets back to that terrible anxiety. You know, again, I, I really love my students. Um, these are, are often really idealistic, really um, uh, good-meaning young people. Um, I've really valued the experiences I've had with them. I think there's this terrible anxiety. Um, you know, Nicholas Lemon um, writes about uh, what he calls the Mandarin class. And leaving aside kind of the problematic <laughs> racial connotations of that phrase, um, what he, I think, means by that is, you know, we've got this generation of folks who, you know, their parents have achieved a lot of uh, financial success through this system of, of university education. But these are not the so-called old guard who have been old money for generations. And so there's this terrible anxiety about sort of maintaining the family's place in this uh, perceived ever shrinking circle of, of financial privilege. And so there's this real, um, I would say, terror <laughs> of, of not being able to continue that. And that puts a lot of pressure on the students. And, you know, I, I one of the most sad episodes of my educational career was a student who I caught cheating um, on an assessment. And then, you know, when I said, look, I'd much rather you earn a B on your own merits than an A through cheating. And he looked at me kind of sadly as if I was the clueless one, which I guess I kind of was. And he said, you know, Dr. Nuremberg, Harvard's not going to care if I got to be honestly. They want to see the A. And if that's the mindset, I'm not surprised these kinds of things are happening. I'm a parent myself. I want what's best for my children. And I can see how, you know, in this, in this atmosphere of anxiety, you know, oh, my gosh, I've got to do anything I can. I think that anxiety is also a product of this structurally unjust system that we benefit from as white people. But we also get hurt by, you know, if, if we set up a situation that is so um, – disproportionate that only a few people get a slice of the pie, then yeah, we're going to be so caught up in the terror of making sure we get that slice of the pie that we're not going to have the, the resources to do much of anything else. And it's in our self-interest to try and say, wait a minute, maybe if we change the system a little bit or rather work with marginalized people to change the system, because a big part of, of being an activist ally, as Katie Swallow would say, is not being the white savior. It's not stepping in and saying, hey, I'm going to fix the system. It's, huh, maybe I need to work with and listen to and partner with people who have had no choice but to fight these structural injustices. And working together, maybe we can actually make a place where we're all a little less terrified and anxious. That's the goal. 
and you're listening to WIP Sunday here on 94 WIP All Sports Radio. My name's Peter Solomon. My guest this morning is the author of the new book, What Does Injustice Have to Do With Me? His name, David Nuremberg. He's got a lot to say about our education system and what's right and what's wrong and what we need to do. My name's Peter Solomon. David, but when we talk about parents' anxiety, children's anxiety, aren't parents equally to blame? Um, as a parent myself, I suppose I, I also need to take responsibility um, for <laughs> my part in all this. Um, I think we ourselves, you know, as parents, were once students and we're a part of this system as well. Um, you know, in trying to do what's best for our children, we might, you know, ironically perpetuate a system that, that harms them. And, you know, I wrestle with that certainly personally all the time. But I'm also a big believer that teachers and parents, you know, should be partners in trying to create the conditions that, that help their children the most. Um, we, we have the same goal. And if that goal includes, you know, developing a recognition that the system hurts us as well, then we can be partners in doing the work of social justice. You know, part of, part of best practices in helping students of color, you know, succeed and develop a sense of themselves as successful in, for example, uh, sciences and maths. There's an expression, if I see it, I can be it. Mm -hmm. And so teachers are enjoying to provide, you know, many examples of scientists of color and scientists from marginalized groups. And I think that applies also to white people who work to change the system to make it more socially just. You know, I only ever learned when learning about the civil rights era in schools about civil rights um, activists of color. And of course, they did, you know, the lion's share of the work. But there were also folks like the Freedom Riders. You know, Andrew Goodman and Michael Shermer gave up their lives as white Freedom Riders. And we had folks in uh, apartheid era South Africa, like Ethel Fugard, who got jailed, you know, as white people for opposing this system that supposedly was giving them every advantage. And this can't just be about altruism. When you have all these people um, who are white who decided, you know what, I'm willing to stake my life on changing this. That has to be because they felt that the alternative was going to hurt them more. And so, you know, if we study, particularly if we are working with, you know, white students and white privileged students, um, if we study some of those examples, folks like, you know, uh, lawyer David Van, um, who in the Birmingham campaign, you know, brokered the agreement uh, between the uh, the SCLC and Dr. King and the shop owners in Birmingham to desegregate lunch counters. You know, there's a role, there has always been a role for um, for folks who are white or for folks who have privilege to help change that system. And why would so many people have done that unless there was some kind of self-interest in that? And again, I want to emphasize this is not white savior syndrome, you know, or it shouldn't be. It's not effective if it is. This is about, hey, we have this joint interest, and let's figure out a way that we can work as partners. All right. Maybe I'm dating myself, though, David, in that I remember my education way back when with Fred Lidstone um, about that, and that was African-American History Week, and we watched Bill Cosby's Black History Lost Straighter Stolen in the auditorium with a whole crew of other kids and if you dared not to pay attention, you got to smack in the head from the teacher. I think 
my education tended to be the heroes and holidays model um, as a white person. You know, as you say, you know, this is this is Black History Month, which implies that, you know, okay, I guess during the rest of the year, <laughs> we don't need to look at that. And, you know, maybe if we looked at Black history as being just a part of American history without any special fanfare, I think that could go a long way towards addressing this very compartmentalized approach to, to studying social justice, not to mention just the experiences of different kinds of Americans in our country um, that then leads folks to, uh, like, for example, this, the student of mine who's uh, anecdote kids off the book. Um, one of my star students wrote his final exam essay earnestly, arguing that you shouldn't have to study Martin Luther King because I have a dream has nothing to do with what goes on in our school. And I think he really believed that. And after I kind of, you know, picked my job off the floor, you know, I realized that, you know, I've got to listen to my students. You know, here is someone who is saying that they don't see the relevance of what we're learning in class. And cardinal rule in teaching anyone anything, if kids don't see the relevance, they're not going to be engaged. And so I think the heroes and holidays approach, the, the listen to Bill Cosby and boy is our understanding of Bill Cosby changed over the last um, you know, decade or two. But if, if it's limited to that, you know, okay, here's our, our one week when we look at this, then we're not going to think it's about us. And so, you know, another piece the book talks about is, uh, you know, the need to integrate without any particular fanfare the experiences of all kinds of Americans so that you can't even get to the conversation about structural injustice and, you know, and potential ways to address that if you feel this is somebody else's experience that has nothing to do with you. How do you get parents involved, though, in that kids may be open or more open, but their parents, different generation, different experiences, different educational things happen to them. How do you get them to care? It's hard. <laughs> I will I will be honest with you, it's hard. And I certainly in the book keep coming back to um, the reality that every school is different, every community is different, every classroom is different. And so nothing in the book um, is presented as a one-size-fits-all. It's a set of strategies because ultimately teachers need to tailor it to the students they have, the school community they have, the parents that they work with, and, of course, you know, their own personality instead of, of experiences and what's authentic to them. I think what has been most successful and most successful for me because it's honest is that this is good education for students beyond just the, the confines of talking about race and justice. You know, the Common Core requires that students develop critical thinking skills and analytical skills and perspective taking and communication in diverse contexts. And engaging students in talking about these issues help them do all that. <laughs> you know, schools get so trapped in these coverage models of, you know, we've got to somehow, quote, cover hundreds and hundreds of topics with no time to go deep into any of them. And, you know, students wind up learning this kind of trivial pursuit approach to knowledge. And that doesn't actually accomplish the goals that our schools have set out to accomplish. It's kind of criminal how much time and energy is wasted in schools helping students memorize stuff that's Googleable. And really what we need to do is prepare them to address situations that don't have, and this is uh, quoting one of my students, that don't have Googleable solutions. And race and economic justice, that doesn't have a Googleable solution. And that makes it perfect for developing all those critical thinking and analysis and evaluation skills. And so 
at least what has been successful in my personal experience. And I'm fortunate that I've, you know, also met a lot of very supportive parents and I've had administrators who have been supportive, um, has been, hey, look, you know, these kids are developing all the skills we need them to develop. And this is a means for them to do that as opposed to a distraction from uh, from what is good teaching and learning. Now, this is good teaching and learning. Um, and the proof in the pudding is what these kids go on to do. Um, you know, the, uh, an anecdote I, I close the book with, and it's still kind of one of the one of the high points, because good gosh, teaching has a lot of low points too. But one of the high points um, was a student of mine. She uh, was a white student who was having a really rough year. She had had a, an injury um, in sports, and it kept her out of sports, and that was really what was seeing her through school because. Uh, she was not feeling great about school. She wound up taking a lot of mental health days after her injury. Um, but she wound up getting involved in this project um, in my class that, you know, attempted to engage students as activists in causes that they chose. And I want to be clear, I had plenty of students who identified with traditionally conservative causes who, you know, did acts of activism as they defined for those causes. Um, this young lady decided to... Uh, to learn more about the Black Lives Matter movement. And this was at the time, you know, the Ferguson um, um, unrest had, you know, not even really subsided. Um, and it was a very popular issue. And so for um, for her project, she chose to go downtown to Boston to a Black Lives Matter um, inspired rally. And uh, she wrote in her journal that there was a point during the rally when uh, the police were sort of moving in threateningly, and one of the march organizers called out, white allies to the front. And so this student found herself <laughs> moving in between along with the other white folks who were there, the police and the marchers, and the police backed off. And this young woman who had been so down and so feeling hopeless throughout the time that I knew her, she came back so energized and so self-confident. I had never seen her looking like that before um, because she had had this experience where suddenly she had been in a role to to make a difference and not make a difference by kind of seizing the mic, make a difference in using what power and privilege she had to help marginalized people, you know, keep the mic. And, and that's amazing. And I don't think any parent can argue with that kind of change in their students. And I'm not saying these results are typical, and I'm not saying I'm responsible. I mean, my gosh, this young woman did the work herself. But I'm not saying the purpose of school is to is to make students into activists, but in a weird way, it kind of is. Don't we want our students to be able to emerge as young adults who are able to use the skills they learn to make active change in their own lives and the world around them, however we define that? So if that's your definition of activist, this is the whole purpose of school. And and at least in my experience, you know, there have been parents who have recognized that and, and gotten on board. But white allies in front could be what you're describing or could be simply a recognition by the police. White folks are more likely to have a lawyer than the black folks. And more likely to I, I can't speak to that, you know, statistically across the board, but certainly, you know, <laughs> lawyers are a, a part of life um, working in, in highly affluent um, school environments. And it's part of why, again, you're, you're not going to get very far if you take the, uh, the head on, I'm going to throw this in your face approach. Um, there will be not only pushback, but pushback, you know, with 
sufficient <laughs> legal and structural weight that you're not going to last very long. You know, there there have been teachers who have been highly successful with that approach, either in a, a university context because, hey, folks are paying for the privilege of <laughs> getting the tough love treatment. Um, but you can't you can't take that walk um, in in high school, and nor necessarily should you. Your job is not to indoctrinate students. I think as a parent, um, I understand and would agree with uh, parental um, outrage if a teacher is trying to indoctrinate students. Your goal here is to help students become critical thinkers, is to help them expand their worldview and come to their own conclusions, um, but have the tools to be able to do that and to at least know what's out there. And I think, you know, that approach, if done respectfully and done earnestly, if you really kind of help facilitate an environment where all points of view are respected. And again, I'm making that sound easy. It is not. <laughs> there is a, a lengthy chapter in the book on kind of how you can create and maintain and sometimes recover uh, a classroom environment um, that does foster that kind of open discussion analysis. But, you know, if you can do that, A, that's going to, you know, make you less vulnerable, I think, to the lawyers. But B, it's going to be better education for the students. You know, they're going to come out with a critical understanding um, and tools. I would much rather a student emerge saying, this is all BS, but being able to make that case with well-chosen evidence um, and articulated reasoning than for a student to come out sort of, you know, blindly parroting back, you know, everything Peggy McIntosh or, or Derek Bell says. Even if the student comes back from experience with Black Lives Matter and says white supremacy forever. Wow. <laughs> um, I guess I'm fortunate in that that particular situation hasn't happened in my experience. But I think what you're saying, you know, gets to the fact that, you know, there are some folks whose experiences, you know, are really grounded in a very different kind of philosophy. And the versions of that that I've encountered, you know, I really try and not see my goal as to somehow shake students out of that. Um, I see my goal is to help those students develop what tools they can. And then maybe at some point, you know, in their lives, they will choose to, to turn those tools upon their own experiences. Maybe they're not at that point yet. You know, I, I describe myself frequently as very much still on my own journey. And there are certainly times in that journey when I was not ready to have certain conversations. And if someone had pushed me, you know, it would have just driven me back into into what felt comfortable at the time. Um, so I think, you know, everyone's at a different spot. And if my students, you know, emerge with... Uh, a more complex look at whatever spot they're at, I think that's a success. And that's something, again, I try and reinforce in the book. You know, the, the, the job is not to sort of convert or, you know, create an army of converts. It's just to get students to wrestle with that question, what does injustice have to do with me? And that's the beginning of it. And where they take that, you know, that's, that's going to depend upon their own individual journeys and experiences from there. Teaching, and this is a words of one of my colleagues, teaching is an act of faith. You know, you, you try and help students um, develop tools and develop understandings that they didn't have coming in. They add that to their toolbox. And 
who knows where that goes? You usually never find out where that goes. And every now and then you get this, you know, lovely piece of feedback like the, the young woman I mentioned, um, you know, that says, hey, oh my gosh, here's this really tangible, awesome moment I had that I couldn't have had before having this class. But the lion's share of the time, you're just kind of going on faith. And, you know, you hope that your influence has been uh, something that will be in even some small way uh, transformative or beneficial to your students. But really, it's it's their journey. <laughs> you know, you're, you're one stop along that journey, one set of experiences, but it's their journey. And um, hopefully you've helped equip them with, with more tools for tanking it. And you're listening to 94 WIPL Sports Radio. We're talking white privilege, injustice, and what it has to do with white students as they deal with social issues. The WIP Times, 736. David, stay with me. Got to run a few commercials. We'll be right back. Play 94 WIP to get information you can use here on WIP Sunday. My name's Peter Solomon. My guest this morning, educator, author, David Nuremberg. His new book, What Does Justice, Injustice Have to Do With Me? Engaging White Privileged Students with Social Issues. David, what age do you begin? Or should oh, you sorry, begin? Could you please repeat that question? What age should you begin to try and engage students? <laughs> well, my, my background is only um, in teaching adolescents, so that's sort of where my lens uh, focuses. I, you know, I'm not an expert on early childhood development or elementary school, but with the, the, the sample of just my own kids who are at this point elementary school aged, um, I don't think it's ever too early to start having conversations about the real world around us um, in terms of uh, the ways in which our experiences, particularly as, as white people in our family, might be different from are different from the experiences of a lot of students, uh, people in general of color in the country. Um, I My understanding is, and again, this does not come from experience, my understanding is that from an extremely early age, um, you know, people of color in our country have no choice but to recognize um, and grapple with the issue of race. Um, for white people, our privilege is that, you know, we don't usually need to do that unless we choose to. And so certainly one can choose to have that conversation um, with kids at their level, however old they are, however they're able to engage with it. Um, you know, in terms of best practices for doing that with younger children, that's not really in my suite of expertise. Um, but hopefully there will, you know, be other authors out there uh, who do more of that when it comes to, to the school experiences of, of younger kids. You know, part of why I wrote this book is that really there was almost nothing available for educators who were trying to do um, explicit social justice work with explicitly white and affluent populations. So, you know, I I start with the population that I've been working with for the last 20 years and where I've got, you know, the research and scholarly background, but I would invite my colleagues who are um, experts in earlier grades to, to join the conversation. Um, I would love to find out <laughs> at, uh, at what age um, and how one could be most effective talking about these issues. You obviously get acceptance from parents and from students. How about from administrators? I'm sorry, I'm having a hard time hearing you. Could you please repeat? You, you obviously get acceptance for what you're doing with parents, with students, but how's your acceptance with administrators? 
the principal that you work for? Um, I have been very fortunate that the principals I've worked for um, have been supportive, or at least not antagonistic. Um, and again, some of that, I think, owes to the characteristics of the community in which I work. Um, and some of that, I think, owes to the, the experiences of the students. I think a lot of students, um, you know, at least once I started, you know, getting better at this, <laughs> certainly at the beginning, it was not necessarily um, this outcome. But I think over the years, you know, students have been emerging with very positive, very empowering experiences. And I think, you know, administrators want to make sure that students are at base um, progressing in their skills. Um, they also, particularly in schools like this, want to make sure that the parents are happy with it. Um, and so, you know, we've had a lot of very public um, displays of what students have achieved um, with these sorts of classes. Um, for example, we have something called the Justice Fair um, that we do every year where students uh, present to the community and we invite press and, and we invite the parents uh, to share um, their experiences and researching and learning skills in um, online assessment of sources and argumentation and supporting cases of evidence and all the stuff that they are supposed to be learning in the course of an English class. And then kind of through these projects that they've become very passionate about. And, you know, when an administrator, you know, looks and sees here are all these engaged kids, here's positive press that the school is getting in the local newspapers. You know, some of my students were invited to speak at the uh, annual human rights dinner that the Massachusetts Teachers Association runs. You know, it was a wonderful honor for them. It looks good for the school. And I think, you know, in, in my case, administrators have responded positively to that. Um, you know, if I were in a school where administration, you know, reacted differently, I would have to take a, a different set of strategies and approaches. And the book talks about what some of those alternate strategies might be. Ultimately, this becomes, you know, really idiosyncratic in particular because, we don't have a system of public education in our country. We have somewhere on the order of 10,000 to 12,000 separate school districts, each with their own particular character in sociology and psychology. And so ultimately, you know, all this stuff has to be adapted to what works best in your community with the administrators you have. Hmm. Um, are these schools where you've worked public or private? So I am a graduate of a uh, independent school education myself, but the school I've been working at um, for the last 20 years has been public. It's a very affluent, very high performing in terms of test scores public school. Um, so the book sort of assumes its audience is an educator or a parent or a community member in a school district like that, either a very um, affluent successful in terms of test scores, largely white community in a public school or an independent school that sort of matches those criteria. And I think one thing that that unifies those those two worlds is the set of experiences that their students have in them. Um, and in talking to teachers at these kinds of schools, public and private, you know, we, we have the same kinds of conversations that, you know, yeah, I've got great students, they have energy, they're passionate. And they also really don't have a sense of, of the full spectrum of, of inequities and the reasons for those inequities and what part they might be able to play in both, you know, trying to change and recognizing that they too are victims of in different ways those inequities. Um, 
I think the weird common thread I have found is a sense of helplessness among students at these schools, which is kind of bizarre, right? Because these kids have more resources and skills and connections that their families do and levers to influence power structures than anyone. But I keep coming back to that idea that there's this weird kind of prison of affluence that's denied them the experience of really fighting for something and winning it on their own merits. You know, these kids do work really hard. Um, they're very stressed out from all the hard work they do. But for many of them, that hard work is always within the very well-defined contours of a system that they've been given this script for following. And many of them are very good at following the script, but they also see themselves as victims of the script. You know, there's this sense of, why am I here? I'm here to get good grades, to get into a good college, to get a good job, to make money, to um, live a long life and die. <laughs> these, these kids aren't stupid. They, they see the hollowness of it all. Um, but so many of them think the only alternative is being homeless and destitute. And what's been amazing to me, um, both working with my own students and, and talking and reading about the work that much better teachers than I have been doing, is that, again, getting involved in, in examining and taking part in social justice efforts and developing those tools and understandings can really help kids break out of that, that script that's so disempowering and can help them think there might actually be a point to what they're learning besides just college admission. Um, so that's been an interesting common thread between public and, and independent school experiences. What's next? What's next for David Nuremberg? Uh, I'm, I'm sorry. I, I what's, ne what's, what, what's next for you? Another book? What's next? <laughs> um, I hope to continue teaching uh, for uh, the what I hope is the next 20 years of my working career. Um, I really hope this book uh, sparks more conversations. I hope to be able to, through my conversations about the book, meet even more uh, anti-racist educators and learn from them because I still have so much to learn. I would love for this to be a national conversation. You know, we always talk about education reform as if it only involves so-called underperforming schools. I would love to be a part of moving that conversation to, hey, look, the issue of school inequity has two sides, right? There are the folks who are facing all the structural barriers, and there are the folks who appear to be benefiting but are also being hurt by it. And I think once we have that other half of the conversation, we might actually be able to do something about school inequality in the country. And so, you know, I, I would love for the next step to be uh, having a seat at that conversation or even sitting it out and just listening to people have the conversation for once, which is why I'm really grateful for you having me on the show. I think, you know, this is a part of that. And I really want to urge listeners to, to of course, buy the book and read it, but even more than that, to, to, to take up this conversation and, and expand our understanding of what it means to talk about what is best for schools and school-aged children in our country. And I'd like to say thank you to David Nuremberg, a teacher extraordinaire, his new book, What Does Injustice Have to Do with Me? Engaging Privileged White Students with Social Issues. Thank you, David. Thanks for having me on the show. Have a great day. My pleasure. You too. And you've been listening to WIP Sunday here on 94 WIPL Sports Radio. My name's Peter Solomon. And we pass another Sunday here on 94 WIP, living with the COVID virus. How many more Sundays do we have to live with? I'm not sure. But wherever they are and whatever you're doing, wash your hands, safe distancing, please. Take care of yourself. You're important to me. You're important to each other. Finally, there's nothing left to say but my favorite 
Stay tuned for Sports Talk with Sunny Hill. See you soon.